We have arrived at our destination, ladies and gentlemen. We're about to land the four foundations of mindfulness at the airport of Dhamma categories. Once you start dealing with the Buddha's similes, uh, you start to pick it up and then everything becomes a simile. Anyway, we are... Yesterday, I talked a little bit about the five hindrances, especially the first two. And I also talked about the five khandhas. And so I just want to briefly go over the, the, this whole section, this last section of Dhamma categories, is five hindrances, five khandhas, six sense bases and their objects, seven factors of enlightenment, and the eightfold path preceded by the Four Noble Truths, but the Four Noble Truths contain the Eightfold Path. So, you see, as I mentioned, it's a memory device in order to hold these things, and they're very important uh, menus uh, to, to have. They're kind of like cookbooks that you carry along for your favorite recipes. But you see that why I talk about the five hindrances and the seven factors of enlightenment as the most important uh, sections here, because the five khandhas have been more or less are almost overlap with the four satipatthanas, the four foundations of mindfulness, which body, feelings, which is the, the first two khandhas, and then uh, the mind, uh, which contains uh, perception and consciousness. And then volition, sankharas, are really more or less of the nature of the last category, the uh, dhamma categories. So the five khandhas are kind of uh, overlaid or intrinsic to the four foundations of mindfulness. And so we don't really need to concern ourselves so much with them. They are already under inspection. They are already under inspection. When we do the Satipatthana, we do, we're actually in investigating and inspecting the five khandhas. And it's said that uh, anytime anybody attains enlightenment, it is on one of the five khandhas, or all of the five khandhas. So it's one of those that you're investigating, the body uh, materiality, because the body, rupa, is both the body internally and externally. Uh, materiality, the body is materiality, is, is, uh, uh, is the four elements, and the, the structure around you, the, the earth, the planet, everything around you is the four elements. So uh, whenever you're looking for deep insight, liberating insight, you're always investigating the five khandhas. And it's through the five khandhas, penetrating the illusions and delusions around the five khandhas that one attains this uh, awakening, this freedom, having come to the end of, of your misinformation and disinformation about existence. You have realized through these khandhas that uh, intrinsically this realm of of change is 
impermanent, unsatisfactory, and insubstantial. The six sense bases and their objects, I already talked quite a bit about that. Uh, When we talk about consciousness, we're actually talking about sense consciousness. So there is I consciousness, uh, that is this I, not the pronoun I. I, ear, nose, tongue, body, and mind consciousness. So consciousness, vijnana, is taken up in this. Then the seven factors of awakening follow that. Um, And I will talk extensively about this. So if you're a little bit curious about why I don't systematically go through this last uh, collection of menus uh, at the end, it's because uh, they are really integrated into the uh, five hindrances and the seven factors of enlightenment, plus the first three foundations of mindfulness, the body, the, the feelings, mind, and then these five hindrances and the seven factors. So it's a very woven teaching. If you pull one thread, it leads, it's a tapestry, it goes into the tapestry, and the tapestry starts to connect, that thread starts to connect to all the other images in the, fa- in the uh, fabric. So we um, have not talked about the last three of the five hindrances, agitation or flurry and worry, and then uh, sloth, torpor, and doubt. These are given as similes by the Buddha, and the similes, of course, uh, as I mentioned many times, are ways of bypassing translation, because I think the Buddha understood that over time, these teachings would be translated into many uh, different languages. And so these similes are like pictures that help you retain what is being talked about. And so one of the universals is this is water itself. Uh, in every language, you're going to run into the concept of water. Every human is, is familiar with the nature of water. So the mind, the five hindrances are talked about as water. The anger is boiling water. The desire as water laced with colored dyes, which are very pretty but very distorting. And then agitation is uh, bubbling water or running water. And sloth and torpor is stagnant water where moss and things are growing on the surface. And then doubt is muddy water. So this is the the last three of these hindrances and why, as long as the hindrances are active, you can't see clearly. The mind, though, is compared to pure water and the mind always returns to this beautiful, lucid, transparent condition when it's not adulterated by various things. So anger is boiling water and because of all the bubbles coming up, you cannot see. And what is it you can't see? So what the distortion is, unwise attention to the fault. You focus only on the fault, and that's the nature of this distortion in the water, the boiling element in the water. And, of course, it's related to heat. We feel it as anger is felt and described as heat. 
But the, the cure for that is to turn down the heat and let the water come back to its normal state. The desire is uh, dyes floating gently on the water. Uh, of course, uh, you've seen this with gasoline or oil on the surface of water. It turns into kind of shimmering rainbow. And uh, it's very beautiful, but it distorts anything. You can't see through to the bottom. And also even your own reflection uh, is all... Uh, if you look at your face in water where there's gasoline uh, on the surface, there's a rainbow effect on, the, on your own face. So it's not the way it really looks. And you can't see through to the bottom. Agitation is uh, wind on the water. And so the wind is the energy element. There's an excess of energy in the mind and it's moving too fast and therefore it can't see things properly. It can't uh, reason and is not thinking clearly. And of course, this means that you just simply have to slow it down and reduce the amount of energy that's going into the mind, the over, over-energized. Fourth of the five hindrances is sloth and torpor, which means there's not enough energy. So where water is stagnant and there's no flow, uh, then it starts to grow over with slime and moss and, of course, then it becomes uh, stagnant, uh, uh, ill-smelling, Ill etc. So what is the cure for this? More energy. So things like depression and um, laziness uh, tend to make the mind dull, stagnant, and unable to raise clarity and concern about what should be clear and pertinent. So the, the sentry, by the way, can be afflicted by all of these five hindrances. And if the sentry is dozy then, or dull, in other words, doesn't uh, inquire uh, properly, then the, the enemy will be permitted to enter the city. Uh, what is this enemy? That which is not uh, samatha or vipassana. Messengers which bring an inaccurate account of the kingdom. They report that the kingdom is, there's something out there that is permanent, satisfactory, and substantial. And therefore it is either desirable or undesirable, but it is a distorted view of things. So these, these affect the sentry, affect mindfulness. Five hindrances affects and distort mindfulness. And so mindfulness becomes obsessed by desire, but it's an artificial thing. I think you remember the story of the Trojan horse. Now, the Trojan horse was this very beautiful. They had surrounded a walled city, and uh, they couldn't get inside, and they decided to deceive the enemy by making a very beautiful wooden horse as a gift, and then they, they hid a dozen or so guys inside the horse, and those foolish Lads brought it right into the city thinking, well, thank you very much. <laughs> then they went to sleep. <laughs> Sloth and torpor, and the guys climbed out, liberated the city. So that can happen. There's all kinds of Trojan horses out there. Now, these are gifts of misinformation and disinformation that you've been told in your life about what do you think is valuable, what they tell you what is valuable, what you want, and what you're to accept to bring into your uh, city of consciousness. 
And it's the king that makes this decision, that is, consciousness itself makes these decisions. And uh, so you, you bring in the wrong uh, things, and that's the cause of your, de- that's the cause of your uh, eventual defeat. Defeat, from a Buddhist point of view, is simply that you have tumbled into suffering. Uh, we have an agency called Mara, which kind of acts as this misrepresentation of the nature of reality. So Mara is the chief disinformation officer, misinformation officer, and the one that remains silent when you interrogate them about the nature of the world. They do not tell you. So that's Mara. So you see this tangle of the five hindrances. The last uh, of the five hindrances is this uh, doubt. And that this, the simile for doubt is this water with mud in it. So doubt is, uh, the sentry has, it's not clear what the decision is, whether to bring, import the external elements that want into consciousness, that want, uh, whether, they're, whether, whether it's accurate or not, one is, is unable to decide. Um, doubt, of course, uh, as well, at other levels, you just can't make up your mind. And uh, one of the cures for this is not actually to think about it a lot, but actually to stop. The, the thinking itself is just stirring up the mud. It's action that stirs up the mud. So one of the cures for it is samatha itself. Samatha can be very helpful itself in the solving of this. Uh, and so instead of trying to dissolve, uh, to uh, solve uh, problems, you allow them to dissolve through stillness. Instead of trying to uh, examine them and uh, analyze them, you just uh, set them aside and try to go for uh, serenity itself. And that is, uh, that's the thing of just allowing the mud to settle to the bottom. And then you might find uh, once the mud is settled and the water is clear, the mind is clear, that the, the nature of the problem is very simple, actually. It, it isn't, doesn't require, it didn't, didn't exceed your capacity to think through it. it your, your mind was just clouded and, and muddy. So this is the Buddha's analysis of the the five hindrances. And I want to go on then to the seven factors of awakening. Uh, Of course, if you want to explore the five hindrances more, I look over many of my talks, and you will will get uh, full analysis of all five hindrances. So the seven factors of awakening are the beautiful part, and this is sometimes I strangely left out, uh, perhaps uh, emphasis on mindfulness, which is the first of the seven factors of awakening. Mindfulness itself is overemphasized uh, because it's kind of a neutral, uh, it's, a, it's a investigative and neutral, but it's, uh, it's not beautiful particularly. And so you'll, get the, you'll go to all kinds of courses, mindfulness courses, which are more or less dry, experiences of endurance uh, and discipline, but beauty perhaps is not even mentioned. But mindfulness is only an assistant to this, the arising of the beautiful emotional states. And 
I want to emphasize again that the five hindrances and the beautiful emotional states are um, are mutually exclusive. They don't persist at the same time. I talked about this earlier with feelings, that bodily feelings can be observed from a point... You can even have joy while you have pain in the body. But you can't have joy, emotional joy, while you have... Uh, anger or something like this. You're not, you're not able to hold two mental states at the same time. So you're not behind, you're not somehow uh, this observer behind the mental states. Uh, that's, that's the th- so this, this is where we go back to this simile about the nature of water. The mind's true nature is like pure water, but is the defilements have been added and stirred into it. But the water isn't pure and polluted at the same time. It's, it's either got the, the hindrance in it or not. It has the latent possibility of returning to its luminous and, and clear, lucid, pure state because it's not intrinsically the, the hindrances. But they sh- it shouldn't be thought. And some schools... Uh, seem to have this idea that these two things are persisting uh, at the same time. Um, But I would say that the intention of the Buddha, at least in the Theravada tradition and in the suttas, is that these are not uh, uh, simultaneously existing. They're, they're, They're one or the other. And if you do have an idea that they're simultaneous, then it's, it's a nice theory. It's a very uh, interesting philosophical uh, uh, or even a physics kind of uh, theory, but it's, uh, it's, it doesn't, it's not very pragmatic, it's not very uh, practical. And the, the aim of the Buddha, which is very, very clear, is to free yourself completely from the hindrances. They are no longer active. They don't even have a latent, there's not even a latent tendency. So that's the the withering away of the, of the roots of these hindrances, the, the roots of the psychic irritants, the samyojanas, which I mentioned in an earlier talk. These are, these are the fundamental root tendencies towards these things. They actually dissolve and are uh, broken, so they don't arise anymore. So the Buddha is not... Um, uh, trying to mystify you with these things, he really means that the person who is deeply enlightened does not experience these um, psychic irritants anymore. People in the first two stages of enlightenment, at least, uh, can experience some of the arising of the hindrances, the five hindrances, but they're, they're uh, not as intense or or long-lived as it is for uh, normal people, ordinary people. So you can compare that to some people who are uh, prone to absolute rages, and uh, the, the rage lasts, it goes very deep, they, they can do destructive things, they can kill and uh, destroy during that, and it can last a long time. The normal person in the normal range does not do that. They, they might... Uh, occasionally break a plate or something like this, but uh, uh, it's more restrained and it doesn't last for, for indefinite periods of time. So for the enlightened person, again, it's, it's much weakened over that. 
uh, primary, the primary, uh, well, all the five hindrances are much weakened. And um, so it doesn't, it's, it can arise, but it's in a mild form, and it doesn't last that long. It's not that intense. So that, that is in itself a wonderful blessing. So uh, if uh, in the higher states of uh, enlightenment, the, they, don't, they don't arise anymore. So there's two things that don't arise anymore after the second stage of enlightenment, and that is uh, greed and, uh, and uh, anger. No longer arise, deactivated by a third stage. Enlightened person is not standing aside from it and, and kind of experiencing their, their anger as a, as a kind of a, cloud in their mind or something is that's not the model that the buddha is expressing there is no cloud the the moon is free from clouds from mist from smoke the sun is free from those things and is luminously shining in the sky so that's the, the simile and the metaphor for the mind so let's go into the the other seven factors we've already uh so one of the seven factors is mindfulness itself, which is the topic of the whole of the four foundations of mindfulness. So the first factor of enlightenment is mindfulness itself. Uh, so wonderful. Then the next one is investigation of Dhamma. And this involves actually these two uh, lists, these, the five hindrances, and the seven factors. So why the five hindrances? Because you have to investigate them, and especially through the similes. So you have to understand, well, what is anger? What's the problem with anger? Why does anger arise? What's its nature? We talked about it uh, yesterday. Unwise attention to the fault. And, uh, and then it's accompanied by unpleasant feelings. So suffering arises, and and impossibility of seeing things as they are arises. Uh, desire is sometimes accompanied by pleasure. It's hard to get rid of, and it is distorted by unwise attention to the beautiful. So this is, this is part of this Dhamma Vichaya, the Dhamma investigation faculty. Uh, we also, it applies to the, to, uh, the body itself, so uh, investigation of, uh, of dhamma in the body, uh, breath meditation uh, it requires investigation. What are, what are we supposed to be doing while I do the breath meditation? Uh, what's happening to my mind? It's wandering. Why is it wandering? Uh, can I bring it back? What will happen if I, if I systematically do this exercise? Eventually, my mind will become more obedient to me and will stay in the present the body is now the anchor for the helium balloon as well of the mind. And then we investigate the body as uh, we divide it into 32 parts. We see its nature. Is it really attractive? It, what is it really? And then we look at the, it as four elements. What is it really? It's, it's earth and air and fire and water. And uh, then we look at it after death. What is its true nature? What is its inherent nature? What comes along with birth? Death comes along with birth, and it's the, ma- it's the body that drops away. So we are investigating, dhamma, vichaya. We're investigating the body. 
that we investigate feelings. We say, well, what kind of feelings are there? They're pe- plain, uh, painful and pleasant, or I know we can, we can extrapolate it out. We can say, you know, the, the, the feelings which will occur in the future, the present, the past, feelings which are accompanied by the eye, ear, nose, tongue, body, mind. So the, the, based on six senses, etc. So this is the kind of the uh, investigation. And then, of course, the theme of the investigation, the ultimate theme, the ultimate uh, point of this experiment, it's like a, a, a physics laboratory that is actually set out to measure the speed of light. So they're going to have to do a lot of different uh, apparatus and know a lot about atmosphere and, and so forth in order to get an accurate sense of what is the speed of light. So we're actually interested in what is this Dhamma Vichaya leading to? Not just knowledge about these things, uh, but ultimately it's leading to the, to the uh, uh, unfolding of this truth of anicca, dukkha, anatta, so impermanent, unsatisfactory, and insubstantial. And the mind awakens to this. Uh, this is, the, this is the, the simile of the lotus. The lotus flower is the mind. Uh, the, the lotus, if you haven't been to uh, Asia, you might not know it, but the, the lotus closes up at night, and, and on the, the first shaft of sunlight that hits it is like a little trigger for it, and it, it, it opens within you know just a few seconds. You can see a flower opening right in front of your eyes. Amazing. But it, what's triggering it? Uh, a shaft of light. So this is dhamma. The dhamma uh, hits your consciousness, and... Uh, the mind opens, so the lotus is the simile of the uh, awakened mind. Very beautiful, but you have to be um, you have to be up from the tropics to understand it. There's not too, well, there are lotuses out in our in our little uh, northern pond. They're lilies of some sort. But uh, yeah, so we this is the pr- process of investigation of dhamma, and then uh, the third category is. Uh, mind itself, and we divided the mind into two things, uh, wholesome states and unwholesome states. And this is what the Buddha, as Bodhisattva did, he divided his mental states up into anger and not, greed and not, delusion and not, expansive, contractive, etc. These are uh, just simply nice uh, Methods of categorizations, keeping it simple, becoming more and more lucid about the nature of and workings of your own mind. So this is also part of Dhamma Vichaya. So then all three of those first categories are really uh, framed and put into context in the fourth category. So this is where a lot of people go wrong, and I kind of emphasized this when I was talking about mindfulness of the mind is not a freestanding subject. It's not enough to know you're angry or not. Oh, I'm angry. Ah, that's my, my, my vipassana practice, my mindfulness practice. I'm angry. And just be with it. Uh, greedy just be with it. No. To isolate that and think of it as a, as a standalone teaching is not, uh, not the context. That, those first three, the, the body, feelings, 
and mind are incomplete until they're taken and put into the last category, and that's where you get this this uh, synthesis and analysis and the packaging. So these packages, five hindrances, because there's duties towards the five hindrances. They're called hindrances because they're impediments to your awakening. They, your duty is to prevent them if they arise to remove them. And then your duty is to the, to the seven factors of enlightenment is to maintain, uh, deepen, and uh, bring into existence uh, bring them into existence. So you have uh, the, these mental states, anger and not, and so forth, are not, or expansive and contracted. This expansive mind they're talking about is form, some form of a positive mental state, perhaps samadhi. Uh, that, that is not to be watched. That is to be uh, maintained and deepened. And so this is where you get the uh, coherence. If you if you isolate the four foundations of mindfulness, if you, if you take them apart and have separate menus, uh, you, you risk uh, misunderstanding them. They, they really come as a package, and you need to understand the, uh, how they all fit together and they all uh, play back and forth on, on each other. So uh, the next uh, factor is energy. And so uh, it's wonderful. We appreciate energy, and of course, energy uh, and effort go together. And energy, though, must be moderated. And we had that as one of the one of the hindrances: is when energy becomes excessive, it becomes agitation. When energy is not adequate, it becomes sloth and torpor. So energy is a is a beautiful. Uh, capacity of the of the of the heart of the emotional structure of the mind but it needs to be uh, balanced and moderated and mindfulness helps to do this it must be brought to a, a beautiful uh, a beautiful tension just the right tension produces the right uh, note uh, this is the Buddha gives a simile of tuning a string on a guitar something I or a, 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 a vena or a sitar at the time, just tuning it right. There's a certain tension when you get the right tuning that the, the instrument vibrates and resonates and, and produces a beautiful sound. And if it's too slack, or too tight, it doesn't, doesn't work. So energy is that. And uh, then we move to joy. And uh, this uh, joy and energy are... Um, playing back and forth all the time. They're, they're mixed together. And joy is a more active uh, type of uh, emotion. Uh, and joy is a, uh, something to be welcomed in. And what is the uh, enlightenment factor of joy? Must be mysterious. Well, it's actually the same joy that you have experienced sometimes in your life with various things, perhaps with music or romance or entertainment and so forth. That's joy. It's just based on different, on the wrong source. And why is it the wrong source? Why is joy from, uh, say, music or dancing or something? Uh, why is that 
What's wrong with that? Well, it's not wrong. It's just there are, are inherent problems with it. It is very dependent on the situation, and it's likely to uh, dissolve on you. So the enlightenment factor of joy is based on uh, internal factors. It's not based on that which arises from the sight, sound, smells, tastes, touches. It's something that is a uh, condition of being that arises from within. And the Buddha talks about this as like a, a mountain lake which has no external streams to it, but it has a, a spring which wells up from inside, and that's the internal sense of uh, joy arising up from this, from this nature of the mind being free and unharassed, so that as the hindrances are undone, joy arises, joy arises, enlightenment factor joy. Then we move to the last three factors, which are uh, more in the serenity uh, structures. And uh, so the first one is what we would translate it as serenity. So we're not quite into samadhi yet, but we're moving there. We have purified the mind and we feel extremely serene and lucid, but energized. And, and so we are able, we're on the cusp of samadhi. Samadhi is the eighth factor of the path. The seventh factor is mindfulness. The most complete description is the four foundations of mindfulness. Guess what? The, your your, your uh, process of mindfulness has, has been successful. How do you know? You've arrived at the doorstep of samadhi. And what is the doorstep of samadhi? The five hindrances have subsided. Energy and joy are present, and you are in a state also of serene joy. You're right on the edge of samadhi. Now, samadhi is just uh, going to deepen and clarify and purify your, your serene joy. And so joy remains in the first of the jhanas. So the sec- sixth factor of the seventh, seven factors of enlightenment is samadhi. And it begins with joy of the mind and ease of body or happiness of body or pleasure of body. So these are very beautiful things. This is very positive types of language. This is a factor of enlightenment. Samadhi is a factor of enlightenment, meaning that it not only it leads to enlightenment, but it t- partakes of enlightenment. So meaning that the mind of the enlightened person is uh, easily swings into samadhi. But what got them there? Samadhi. So you, you uh, more or less, it's kind of like getting on a, a luxury yacht. Uh, you're going to an island, but the boat itself is already very nice. <laughs> the, the, the boat, that, the, the vehicle that takes you to samadhi is samadhi. It reminds me of a saying by Emerson. He said, the reward of virtue is virtue. It's its own reward. And there are a lot of things in life like that. So uh, if this uh, samadhi proceeds far enough, one, something emerges in the personality. And it emerges both in a deep, still way and also in 
in the activities of daily life, and that is equanimity, which is the seventh factor. You are equanimous. Why are you equanimous? Uh, you're balanced and unswayed. You're not pulled one way and another. Uh, why is this? Because the world around you, the, the world which is perceived through sight, sound, smell, taste, touches, and ideas, and the, the Buddha defines the world that way. He says, what, O monks, is the world? Sight, sound, smells, taste, touches, and ideas. That, O monks, is the world. Where is it found? In this body, one fathom in length. Six sense bases. The sense bases have their, are contained within your body, and then your experience of the world is the six sense objects. And so these are no longer magnetized. You are no longer pulled and pushed by it. You are no longer subject to it because you have seen the nature of it. You've seen that it's impermanent, unsatisfactory, insubstantial, like foam on the water, like bubbles, like a lightning flash, it, uh, like a mirage. On the, it has no uh, substance or reality to it. And you are now at one with that all the time. You don't forget that. So in your normal waking life, in your active life, when you eat and interact with people, the equanimity is there because you're demagnetized. And it also is represent, it, it, it's the end of the samadhi. So it's after the sixth factor, samadhi. These are the, the jhanas. Samadhi is the same as the, the four jhanas. Uh, it's also the, the characteristic of the fourth jhana. Uh, the emotional dimension of the fourth jhana is upeka, or uh, equanimity. The mind arrives at profound stillness, almost perfect stillness. It comes in two basic forms, uh, this equanimity, two basic forms. One is in motion. You're always in balance. So that's like a skier coming, you know, skiing down a... They're, they're actually moving all the time, but they're always in... The essence of it is that they're always in balance. And then something that is still, is balanced still. So maybe like those rocks where you, you know, you, you, you become a rock whisperer. <laughs> you, ba- you set that rock on top of the other one and it's perfectly balanced and it stays perfectly still. So there's two types of equanimity. One is perfect stillness equanimity and then is balance in motion. And uh, one should uh, seek to develop both of these. And they're not, they're not unrelated. They have uh, things in common. And so that, my friends, is the Four Foundations of Mindfulness in nine days. <laughs> uh, we will leave that. Uh, these talks will be left uh, on, our, on our Dhamma channel our YouTube channel, and uh, they will also be followed by more explorations, specifically samadhi explanations. So I've already conducted a jhana retreat, and we recorded it, and there will be about six or seven talks on jhana, which will be uh, put up over the next uh, 
couple months, perhaps. So if you want to fully explore the sixth and seventh factors of the seventh factors of awakening, stay tuned over the next couple of months for explorations of jhana. So I leave this for your reflection, investigation, and hopefully for your, your energy and joy as well. <laughs>